I hope that you do not just pass by the songs that we sing. How many of you are the kind of person, the first song you hear in the morning, you sing it all day long? And isn't it terrible when it's a song you really don't want to sing all day long? Well, these are songs we've sung this morning that have words that we need to be singing all day long. We've sung things like, blessed be the name of the Lord when He gives and when He takes away. We bless God for the blessings, and we bless Him even when everything's not going our way. We sing that God is forever strong, not for an hour on Sunday morning strong. God is forever strong. We sang of God's faithfulness. His faithfulness is great. It's not average. It's not mediocre. It's not ho-hum or humdrum. His faithfulness never ends. It continues. It's great. We have heard that it is our weakness that God lifts us up in. That we give thanks that when we're weak that God makes us strong. And we give thanks because it's Jesus. I hope that when you come into here on Sunday morning, that you will participate in the whole service. And I hope that you will catch the words much more than you would just catch the music because it's the words that teach us about the excellency of our God. And so when we sing, let us sing actively. Let us sing with our minds and our ears and our hearts and our minds and grab hold of this great God that we have. Well, this morning we're continuing to look at the concept of what it means to be clear. What it means to be clear with the gospel in particular, and also what it means to be clear as we head into the holiday season. If there's ever a time that it's a good time for us to be clear about the gospel, it's during this season where people seem to be a a little more open to hearing things that are good. Uh, My friend Rick wrote an article this morning, and I, I read it early this morning, and he said, we all have an Uncle Harry at the holidays, you know. Uncle Harry, the guy that, you know, you try to avoid when he comes in the room. And, and Rick just writes this great article about, oh, let's go with the gospel to Uncle Harry. Let's remind our hearts that the gospel is greater than our fear, greater than our worry, greater than our stubbornness. And when we go, let's go clearly with the gospel. And that's what we're going to try to help our hearts remember again this morning. Our sermon today is a pinch is not enough. And we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. But let's spend just a moment praying before we do. Father, we thank you for the magnitude of the words that we have sung. We thank you that we get to sing things like forever, that you are great. That if the world falls apart in the next five minutes, it won't change you. And so we come this morning asking that you would use our praise and use our worship, that you would use your word to fill our hearts with truth, and that the truth will all over again, or maybe for the first time today, set us free to worship and enjoy you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you like cinnamon? I love cinnamon. I use cinnamon in everything that I cook. I put it in cakes. I put it in cookies. I put it in pies. I put it in soup. I put it in chili. I put it in corn casserole. I mean, I put chili in just about everything. I I just like chili. 
I love it. What happened? Did I say chili? I like chili too. Because in just a little while, we're going to have the chili cook off. So be. I like chili too. I like cinnamon in my chili. If you didn't put cinnamon in your chili, you only put Skittles in your chili today, it's okay. Whatever your chili is, we'll do chili in a few minutes. Thanks, Scott. Keep me straight today. I like cinnamon, but not tons of cinnamon. You know, that's a bad idea. Tons of cinnamon is, is not good. But just a pinch, just a dash, just, just a smidgen of cinnamon. Now, this week is going to be a cinnamon week, right? I mean, from sweet potato pie to sweet potato souffle to pumpkin pie to spice cider, or for the more cultivated, wassail. And yes... I would probably put some cinnamon on the turkey. I mean, it can't hurt anything. It has a little flavor to it. I like cinnamon. Irma Bombeck said this, Thanksgiving dinners take 18 hours to prepare. They are consumed in 12 minutes. Half times take 12 minutes. This is not a coincidence. <laughs> She's probably right, you know. There's some kind of match up there. And if we really think through it, just think about your normal Thanksgiving. It really does sound a lot like that, right? It sounds like it's probably about four cups of shopping, two cups of football, a cup of parade somewhere in there, maybe a tablespoon of eating, a, a teaspoon of highs and hugs, and just a pinch, just a dash, just really a smidgen of thanks. How did that happen? How is it that Thanksgiving seems to have lost it's thanks. Well, maybe questions like that are best answered when we look back a little bit. Thanksgiving officially did not become a holiday in the United States until 1863 when it was proclaimed by President Abraham Lincoln. I want us to consider just a portion of his proclamation this morning. President Lincoln writes, The year that is drawing toward its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. The country, rejoicing in the consciousness of augmented strength and vigor, is permitted to expect continuance of years with large increase of freedom. Listen to this part. No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise. And catch this part. To our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. People don't write like that anymore, do they? They don't talk like that anymore, but, but maybe we should. And what does Lincoln say? He says that thanksgiving should be observed how? Solemnly and reverently and gratefully. All right, really, just think about your family thanksgiving. Those are the three words that really apply, right? Solemn, reverent, and grateful, right? That's how we all do it. 
Now, if we're honest, if we really think through it, are we more superficial than solemn? Are we more revved up for football than we are reverent? Are we more greedy for extra pie than we really are grateful? I know you're probably thinking, well, thanks, Pastor Scrooge. You, you know, totally <laughs> ruined my whole Thanksgiving spirit. We're superficial and we're greedy. Okay, 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 okay. Hang me with you just a moment, though. Because there's nothing wrong with family. There's nothing wrong with friends. There's nothing wrong with food. All those things are good. There's nothing wrong with fantastic Friday, Black Friday deals. That's, that's all good. But are your holidays holy days? Has, has there been an, an exit of God at the times that there should be an entrance of God? I mean, really, just think, next Thursday, how much of the grace of God will be a part of that day outside of blessing the food? Somehow, Thanksgiving has lost its thanks. And not just Thanksgiving Day, what about the other days? I mean, if the grace of God has kind of bypassed Thanksgiving, if the, if the holy days are now just holidays, if, if we've really missed it that much, what about the other days in November? What about the other days of the year. How are we doing at being thankful then? Maybe put in another way, do we have just a pinch of Christianity? Is there just a, a dash, just a, just a smidgen of Jesus in our lives? I mean, just, just barely enough that people probably can barely see. The Apostle Paul was writing to the Colossian church. He wanted to challenge them about living out their faith. Not just on the holidays, but on all the days. So how does he challenge them? Well, let's find out. Look with me at Colossians 5, 4, beginning with verse 5. Paul writes, conduct yourselves with wisdom. Well, what is wisdom? Well, the psalmist defines it this way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we have to be afraid of God to be wise. And that's what it means. We have to fear the Lord. We have to be afraid of God if we're ever going to get out of college, you know, if we're ever going to have any wisdom. No, that's not the picture of fear here. The, the fear we're talking about is, is not the kind of fear that, that someone who, who may or may not be in my family or may or may not live in my house has of you know, mice and, and cockroaches and snakes and things like that. We're not, we're not talking about that kind of fear, the kind of fear that, that grips us. The fear of the Lord is completely and totally different. I love this definition. Fearing the Lord means fearing to run away from Him. It means fearing to seek refuge and joy and hope anywhere but in God. It means keeping before our eyes what a fearful prospect it is to stop trusting and depending on God to meet our needs. Love that. A fear of the Lord means that God is your God. Not the preacher's God. Not the church's God. He's your God. He's your God. Not on Sundays and not on Wednesdays and not just on Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter. But every day inside of us, we are fighting the fight to, to keep our hope and our trust and our joy in God. And why would we do that? Why would we fight so hard to keep our hope and our trust in God? Well, it's because we understand. We understand what? 
Well, we understand what it means to not have hope in God. We understand what it means to not have joy in God and what it means to not trust in God. Paul told the Ephesians this in Ephesians 2.12, Remember that you were at that same time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Without Christ, a person is completely and totally and eternally separated from everything that is good and wonderful and holy. Without Christ, there is no real lasting hope. In fact, Thanksgiving Day, the good feelings of Thanksgiving Day, the the good feelings of Christmas Day, that's it. That's as good as it gets if you do not have saving faith in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to end that way. The story doesn't have to stop with that chapter. There is a way to no longer be lost. There is a way to no longer not have hope. And Paul gives it to us. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What is the most horrible reality in the universe? The most horrible reality in the universe is being far off from God. Living in this world and leaving this world as an enemy of God. What's the most wonderful reality in the universe? The most wonderful reality in the universe is being brought near to God. Living in this world and leaving this world as a friend of God. That's what's the most wonderful reality. Have you ever had a parent, maybe a spouse, a child, a grandchild, a friend push you away? Ever had that? They rejected you, they ignored you, they they criticized you. They said things maybe even like, I just wish you were dead. Anybody ever faced rejection from someone close like that? There's a young man who went to his father one day and he demanded his inheritance. As soon as he got his money, he took off, left as fast as he could. And he took that money and he went and spent it on all the latest smartphones and tablets and computers and TVs. He bought expensive cars and went on foreign trips. He used his money to buy gifts for people so that he could buy their affection and buy their friendship. But then one morning he woke up and it was all gone. Everything that he had was gone. And he realized what he did. In demanding his inheritance, he basically said to his father, you know what, I wish you were just already dead so I could get my money. And he got his money, and then he went and lived as if his father really was dead. But then it was gone. All of it. And he woke up. He he came to his senses, and he knew what he had to do. There was only one place he could go. He had to go home. He had to go back to his dad. 
He didn't know what it was going to be like. He didn't know if his dad was going to kick him out immediately when he got there. He didn't know if his dad was just going to throw him in the family business and make him clean toilets for the rest of his life. But he knew he had to go home. He knew that was his only hope. His dad, his father, was his only hope. So he made his way back to his house. He got to the end of his father's long driveway. He started to walk through the gate. And what happened? This is what Jesus says. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. From the moment his son left, the father was sitting on the porch looking for him, longing, praying that his wayward son would come back. And when he saw him, He didn't wave at him from the porch. He jumped off the porch. He ran down that long winding driveway and he embraced his son. He longed for his return. The son, in lots of ways, was far, far off. But now, now he was near. Now he had been brought near. Have you ever experienced that moment with God? Have you ever experienced that moment when you are no longer far off, but you've experienced what it means to be brought near? That you've repented of your sins, that you've seen your rebellion against God, and you've received the salvation, and you feel deep inside that you've been forgiven and you've been free. If you haven't, then I pray God would have mercy on your heart today and that that He would pull you near. And if you have, if you're a believer and you've experienced what it means to be brought near, then don't run away from that. Let that fear of the Lord, that nearness to the Lord be real. Don't run away from God. Don't start trusting in yourself first and most. Don't start trusting in other people or in other things first and most. But keep fearing the Lord and keep trusting the Lord first and most. You see, true wisdom, this is what Paul's trying to to help us see, true wisdom begins and and ends as it's completely wrapped up in the fear of the Lord and the nearness of the Lord. Wisdom is found in the, the near and the fear, that the nearness would draw us to the fear of the Lord and that the fear of the Lord would draw us to the nearness of the Lord. And Paul says we're supposed to take that nearness And we're supposed to live it. We're supposed to watch our conduct. We're supposed to watch how we're acting. And we're supposed to watch that under the umbrella and through the heart knowledge of the nearness of God, the the fear of the Lord. Paul's saying that in our actions, we have to acknowledge we've been brought near. So, just real simple. Think about the normal patterns of your life. The normal habits of your life. The normal actions of your life. How are those things matching up toward the wisdom and the nearness and the fear of knowing God? And why does it matter? I mean, can't we just have a pinch of Christianity? I mean, isn't that enough? I mean, won't a pinch get us by till next Sunday? Won't that be okay? Why do we have to work so hard to live out our faith? Well, Paul's going to help us with an answer to that. Look at the next part of verse 5. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders. 
outsiders are non-Christians, non-believers. We live in a world where there's lots of non-Christians around us. And Paul says that the reason that, that we have to be wise in our conduct is that these folks are everywhere we go. Now, outsiders, non-believers, they don't love God. They, they don't care about our church. They don't care about religion. They do not see a need for God at all. They could care less that Abraham Lincoln ever said anything about Thanksgiving being about God. And we should not hate them for that. <laughs> we should not be mad at them for that. As one of my pastors once said, we sometimes as Christians think that we clean the fish before we catch them. That's, that's not really how it works. So we live our lives with this wisdom, this nearness of God, this, this fear of God, because we're surrounded by people who don't know about God. They don't know what it means to be near. Let me see if I can make this a little more practical. Imagine that you are my neighbor, that you live in my neighborhood. And let's imagine that I never cut my grass. And my kids leave their bikes and their toys all over the neighborhood, on the sidewalk, on the curb. They're playing silly string in the front yard all the time, and it's everywhere, and they leave it up there for weeks. And I have some of the ugliest Christmas decorations in the world. <laughs> and I put them up all over the house on the outside, and I leave them up all year long. And when I'm riding through the neighborhood, man, I'm throwing my Diet Coke cans and my Zagnut wrappers out the window in your front yard, and I don't care. It doesn't bother me any. And on Halloween, I put a bunch of speakers on my front porch, and I turn them up really loud, and I play Monster Mash nonstop from 5 to midnight, loud as I can. And then one day, I bump into you at the old soda shop or the coffee hut, and I say, hey, love to have you come to our Christmas Eve service at church. How do you think that's going to go over? All right, let's flip that a little bit. Same scenario. You're still one of my neighbors, but this time a, a little bit of a difference. This time, man, I'm yard of the month every month. And I let you know all the time some things that you might be able to do to make your yard almost as good as mine. And I pull out the neighborhood covenant and I say, hey, it says 24 hours, all that silly string has to be cleaned up. You can't leave it in the yard for weeks. And at the homeowners association meeting, I say that your Christmas decorations are awful and they ruin the ambiance of the neighborhood and that your wife's roses are two inches too high according to the covenant. And the reason I know is I went and measured while y'all were on vacation that your roses are too high. And then I bump into you at the home improvement store one spring day, and I say, hey, love to have you guys come to our Easter service at church. You may not take me up on that offer, huh? You see the picture here of our conduct and why it matters? Gilruh says this, we do not want to give unbelievers any excuse to turn off the gospel of Jesus Christ because of offenses in our lives. They may be offended by the gospel, but we do not want our lives to be an offense. Listen, the gospel tells people that they are sinners. The gospel tells people that, that no one's good enough to get into heaven on their own. 
The Gospel tells people that they have to submit to and surrender and yield to Jesus Christ for the, for the forgiveness of their sins or there's no hope at all in their lives. And, and the Gospel's never going to change. That message will always be the same. But non-believers don't need to hate the Gospel because we are jerks. We don't need to be a distraction to the Gospel. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 2, 15. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. What's your fragrance? I think it was Johnny Hunt I heard say one time, when people around you, do they smell Jesus? What do people smell when they're around us? Do, do they have any inkling that Jesus is in our life? Or is there just a pinch, just a dash, such a small amount that you can't even see it? Paul tells us it matters how we live. Look at the next part of verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. This is one of the most self-explanatory verses in all the Bible. Every single person in this room has 24 hours. That's what we have. Every single one of us, we have 24 hours. And Lord willing, tomorrow we'll have 24 hours, and the day after that, and the day after that. And Paul is saying we need to make the most of those opportunities. And here's why. One day, every single person in this room will no longer have 24 hours. We won't. It's not morbid if you're a believer. Great news if you're a believer. But one day our 24 hours will be over. So what are we doing with our 24 hours today? Paul's writing to the church and he's saying, guys, we, we have something that cannot be hidden. We have a truth. We have great news that we must share. So in some ways he's saying, don't miss Thanksgiving. It's an opportunity with Uncle Harry to make a big deal out of Jesus, to make a big deal out of the gospel. Guess what? It's not just Thanksgiving. It's Black Friday, and it's Sunday, and it's Tuesday afternoon at 5.30 on, on I-26. You know, it's, it's all the time. We have the gospel to share. We have the gospel to give. It's an opportunity, but an opportunity to do what? I love how Peter says this. 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. This is so good. We have an excellent God. Our God is excellent. And so that means in our life, people need to see that we believe that God is excellent. That means that above and beyond and in the middle of sports and thanksgiving and work and school and recitals and shopping and vacation and whatever else we do, we need to find ways to very purposely and uniquely let people know that our God is excellent. Think about your kids, your grandkids, your husbands, your wives, your extended family, your friends, the people you work with, the people you go to school with, do those people ever see in me and you that we have an excellent 
God? Do they see us proclaiming the excellencies of God in our life? Do they see that in our actions? Paul says our conduct and our actions need to show that we have an excellent God, but not just our actions. Look at verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace. In our actions and in the things that we say. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 34, For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. All right, prepare, you know, to pull the knife out of your back here. What, what's in your heart? I mean, what do you do with these words from Jesus? They're, they're really clear, right? Whatever comes out of your mouth is what's going on in your heart. Take that into your next marriage argument or your next argument with your kids or your next argument with the lady that charged you 33 more cents on your bill at the restaurant. And whatever it is, what comes out of your mouth, what comes out of my mouth is what's going on in our hearts. Boy, that's a heavy one. So the question is, what's in your heart? Is your heart like a crock pot? You know, crock pots are great, you know? It's just always warming and simmering. You stir it and the food's still there. Is your heart a crock pot just always stirring the things of the gospel? Just always enjoying the excellencies of God? Or is your heart a microwave? You run in here on Sunday mornings for a quick zap of religion so that you can make it until the next Sunday. What happens in our heart is what comes out of our mouth. So, if the grace of God is coming out of your mouth, then it's pretty clear that the grace of God is active in your heart. But, if the normal pattern of your speech is to whine and complain and be negative and be afraid and to worry and to argue, if that's the normal pattern, if that's what you're known for most, then the grace of God is not being active in your heart. Christians should be winsome. That's a great word. We should be winsome. Just use that this week as a great word. We should be winsome. We should be cheerful. We should be charming. As believers, people should not, in the middle of a conversation with us, start trying to come up with an excuse for getting out of the conversation with us. People should not see us coming and hide. Oh, no, here he comes again. As believers, there should be a winsomeness in our lives. There should be something about how we talk and, and how we act that is appealing, not something that people would reject. We're all going to have our moments of frustration. Don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about perfection here. We're all going to mess up. We're all going to get things wrong. We're all going to have somebody that's still going to hide from us. But the question is, what's the pattern? What's normal? What is that one thing you're most known for? Or what would your family say? What would your friends say? Oh yeah, they're always blank. Paul's getting ready to take another shot to our gut here. Look at the next part of verse 6. As though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Watch your speech, watch how you talk, so that it will be seasoned with salt, so that you'll know how to respond to each person. How do we do that? How do we season our conversation and our words with the gospel? What, is, what does that look like? Let me see if I can put it in some practical terminology. Gentlemen, you do not need to be the guy at the local biscuit store or on the golf course 
or wherever else that you may be, known to tell the questionable jokes all the time. That's not who we should be, men. Ladies, you should not be known as the lady that's always got the juiciest information about all the families in the community and are quick to share it as quickly as you can. Children, you should not be known. Teenagers, you should not be known as the children and the teenagers always sassing and talking back to mom and dad, especially in public. Why? Because we live in a dark world. We live in a world full of pain and hurt. We live in a world with no hope. No hope. And so what we do and what we say matters, not because we're trying to be Pharisees, not because we're trying to be perfect Christians, but because we have the story of the gospel. So what does that look like in our speech? What does it look like to make the most of every opportunity? What does it look like to know how to respond to people? If you've missed everything else in the sermon, don't miss this. Phil Newton writes this. The unbelieving friend might not walk up and say, how about telling me what I must know to be a Christian? That's not going to happen most of the time, okay? People aren't going to come up and go, hey, you go to Holland Avenue Baptist Church. What do I need to do to be a Christian? That's not how it's going to work. Notice what he says. Instead, he may comment on some issue in your life or actions or devotion, offering a puzzled look or thought as to why you are the way you are. I love that. Why are you the way you are? That might be the question. Notice what he says next. Or he may ask for your advice to a problem situation in his family or work. Or he may question you about what you believe. Any of these are certain opportunities for pointing to Jesus Christ. The Christian must be ready to respond. Let me ask you a question. Are you ready? That's not a guilt trip. I promise. Hang with me for a second. Are you ready to respond? And what are you supposed to respond with? Is it just a pinch of Christianity? Is it just a smidgen of sentences that we've memorized from some evangelistic formula? No. See, Paul's writing to the church and he's saying in your normal daily conduct, in your normal activity, in your normal actions, tell them the story of the greatest reality in your life. Paul says in the normal way that you talk, just the normal things you say during the week, tell them the great story of the greatest reality in your life. And what is the greatest reality? in a Christian's life. It's this. I once was far off. But now, now I've been brought near. That's the great reality of our lives. This Thanksgiving, this Christmas, next Easter, Tomorrow, Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock, the clear message that we have for our family and our friends and almost anybody else that we come in contact with is this. 
I have been brought near. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your willingness, your passion, your desire, and your love to rescue rebels like us. We pray that you would help us to feel deep within our souls what it means to be forgiven and free. That we would embrace the reality of the fact that we've been brought near. And our nearness to you would be seen in how we act. Our nearness to you would be seen in how we talk. Not just on Sundays, but all the time. And not because we're trying to be perfect Christians, but because we have a perfect Savior. And we can't wait to love and to live for Him. Help us. This is hard to do. Help us, God, to live for Your Son. In His name we pray. Amen.